Welcome to the LTID Network Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and on this podcast, we seek out the world's best researchers, coaches, support staff, teachers, and athletes to better understand the process of long-term athlete development. Don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform and 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50. That's LTADVIP50 at the LTAD Network Hub website. This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets. Just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures, or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Glenn Hunter. Glenn is a specialist in research and innovation in sport-related health and winner of the International Federation of Sports Physiotherapy HVU Award for Outstanding Achievement in this field. He's a chartered physiotherapist and the former head of science and medicine and performance innovation in athlete health at UK Sport and the Senior Consultant in Performance Innovation at the English Institute of Sport, where he managed the health research and innovation program related to over 1,400 athletes across four core Olympic and Paralympic sports. Glenn also facilitated the top-secret development and delivery of new and novel ideas, approaches, and equipment related to athlete health, which have had a performance impact over the last five summer and winter Olympic and Paralympic Games. Glenn has a Master of Science degree with distinction in sports medicine and a Master of Arts degree with distinction in innovation and behavior change and is driven by translating research and evidence into real-world practice and evidence in that benefit. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us. It's a real pleasure. So we'll dive a little bit more into some of your previous roles, etc., um, and, and come into the project at Podium Analytics. But tell us a bit about your own sporting journey. What were some of the sports that you were involved in as a kid? How did that capture a love for sport and the career that you ended up going into? Well, I started probably my early love was for football. Um, and so I was brought up in Blackpool. And um, back then, this is sort of late 60s, early 70s, uh, there wasn't a Premier League. There was a first division. And believe it or not, Blackpool were at the top of that or in the top sort of five or six clubs back then. So they were quite a big club. And at the age of 11, I was sort of uh, talent spotted, let's put it that way, um, and signed as a schoolboy. So I played from 11 to 16 for Blackpool boys, as well as my school and the year above and on a Sunday. So uh, heavily involved in football. It was my obsession. And then I left school and I was signed as an apprentice for Blackpool Football Club. That's like everybody's dream. 
I think back then uh, most clubs would sign two people as an apprentice from you know their scouting programs around the UK. And after that two-year programme of work, hopefully you convert to be a professional. Um, what I didn't know, and neither did they when I signed, is that I was about to develop a problem with my knee. And a technical term is osteochondritis desiccans. But well, basically, it's the blood supply stops to the bone in your knee and your bone, that bit of the bone starts to die and eventually falls off. Um, so I signed. I was doing quite well. I was playing in the reserves. and um, But this pain was just agonisingly bad. And I think the reason for mentioning this is a bit of a lesson here in that I went to the physio who wasn't a qualified physio and said, look, hey, you know, you're at the beginning of your career. The last thing you want is to be labelled injury zone, injury prone, sorry, uh, keep going. Um, and the doctor told me the same thing. So I just kind of battled on. The, the physio who wasn't qualified used to send me after training to stand in the sea in Blackpool. So I had to go and stand in the sea up to my thighs for an hour. Um, and on many occasions, people thought I was committing suicide or, you know, why is this person <laughs> standing in the sea? And various people uh, point fingers at me and things. Anyway, long long story short, um, I just battled on and I was sort of in agony with my knee. But you got picked to play for the first team on a Thursday and you go up to the manager, Harry Potts' office. And I got this message to go to his office. And I thought, was like, I mean, the first team was brilliant. So I opened the door and the uh, first thing I saw was my mum. And my mum had told him that I'd been crying at night. So I was sent off for an investigation that resulted in surgery. And then the outcome of the surgery was um, I couldn't play football anymore. That was the end of my career. So I was 16 and a half. And I suppose the main thing about that was going through the experience of how something you love and something that just brings you to life um, suddenly is removed from your life. And probably the big challenge for me is I was really poor at school. I, I didn't have any qualifications when I left school. And the hardest bit for sport for me was actually the journey on the minibus or the coach coming back, actually talking to people. But on the pitch, I don't know, I just turned into some kind of Napoleon Bonaparte or something. You know, I, I, I just I just felt so at home. This voice came out of me that I didn't know. I was the captain of every team that I ever played with. And yet and when it finished, you suddenly faced with yourself again. Um, and and a lot of friends disappear because they only see free tickets to football matches and things like that. So it's an interesting experience. Anyway, the trigger for that was, um, what do I then do as a career? And I decided that because I'd had an injury and hadn't had much support, that might be not a bad thing. So I thought maybe I'll be a physio. And so I, I went to the the, um, the the library, spoke to librarians before computers, and they used to have these little, uh, you pull out these index cards, and I couldn't find it at all. And then she came up to me. Luckily, she changed my life in a way because I was walking out having not found it. And she asked me if I'd found it. I said, no, it's not there. And I was looking under F for physiotherapy. Um, and she went to P and pulled it out. And, and then it was like, oh, you need five O levels and an A level. And I thought, oh, flipping heck. Anyway, that started the journey to become physio. So I then got enough qualifications, trained to be a physio. Was a, When I qualified, I was about to go in the NHS, live up in Scotland with the person I was with at that particular time. And I got a phone call from Reading Football Club saying we want a physio and we want a qualified physio. And at that time, there was only one out of 92 clubs, one qualified physio, which was Gary Lewin at Arsenal. Um, and I had a week to decide, do I, you know, do I go up and live my life in Scotland or do I leave everything I've, you know, and, go, and I went into football. So, um, so I then had a life in professional football, that's sort of seven days a week. Um, it's a very, when I say intimate, I don't mean in a rude way, it, it, the, the proximity of living with people or it, it, from an injury perspective, day in and day out, two matches a week in the first team, reserve team. It's just this very intimate way to understand the fluctuation and the moods and all the things that go with it. 
So over a period of maybe nine or 10 years, I, I was physio for Reading Football Club, Portsmouth, Crystal Palace and Fulham. So I was a physio in all four divisions during the sort of, uh, would have been uh, 80s really. Um, left there, went back into the NHS. Um, I ended up running the outpatient department at Guy's Hospital. I then went into academia, teaching for 15 years in university in Bristol. And then UK Sport, English Institute of Sport, and now Podium. It's been mainly football in my younger life, was mainly football. But when I went into UK Sport, then you've got roughly 48 national governing bodies, totally different sports. Um, and suddenly you got to learn quickly about those domains too. Mm. Yeah. And a bit of, a, I guess, an evolution of role as well, from being someone who's you know, a working practitioner, working with athletes day to day, to more the kind of research and innovation sort of side of things with UK Sport. Is that fair? Oh, that's true. Yeah. I mean, you, you gradually get the irony is you get you get any clinician will say this. You you develop these clinical reasoning skills that almost become automated. You really know what you're talking about and you've got credibility in that domain. Then you go into teaching and then you start to drift away from. So I'd be pretty dangerous as a physio now, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, but um, to some degree. But there, there's there's no way of um, beating that 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 relationship when you're with somebody who's had an injury or an illness or a disease and you're helping them to get back to whatever they could be there's great skills of reasoning around that but in in academia suddenly you reframe your thinking to say well you've got all this professional wisdom how do you transfer that into the hearts and minds of young people coming into that world and then of course when you move into when i was a, in the research and innovation team at uk sport you then operate through other people so at UK Sport, I was uh, at two roles. I got head of science and medicine, which basically, when I think back on it, I didn't really think about it at the time, but it um, was for the UK. So you're trying to, it was about 2004, that um, the country was getting pretty serious about sport. It was not no longer about let's turn up and, oh, we've won a gold medal. So like coming 36 at, at, in, in the Atlanta Games, was, was shame was put on the nation. So, so great organisations like the Olympic Association, Paralympic Association, UK Sport, all got together and thought, like, let's understand what it means to be excellent and let's, let's have no compromise in getting there. No, no, no compromise doesn't mean winning at all costs. It means let's, let's do our best to get people at the start line to be in the best possible position to open the door to their dreams, you know, that, that in the safest legal way as possible. So I had to... Uh, we had to attract the best scientists and medicine people. And my role was to do that and also help them develop in their knowledge. And the knowledge really, uh, when I look back on it, was more about, so if you take a brilliant medic or SNC or whoever, um, it's getting into understand the coach and the coach understanding the practitioner and both understanding the athlete. That's the hardest bit. So it was more like applied practical wisdom in the world of sport is quite a challenge for a researcher. So I remember the, one of the first projects I had going to UK sport, I'd just come out of university and you, you know, I taught research methods and you got your pockets full like this bat, Batman, Batwoman belt of all these research methodologies. And you suddenly find you've got one person, you've got six weeks to go, you need, I don't know, five watts more power and there's no control group. There's no one ever, because you, well, you're dealing with the fastest person in the world. And suddenly you start to feel very vulnerable and naked because what you want is this the, this armory of statistical power and all of that sort of stuff. But so your options are you don't do anything or you work it out. 
and you you reframe how you think of the approach which is one of discovery exploration you know the early phase of research is always about pictures and patterns it's observations and you're seeing things and you put together a series of events and you can justify your reasoning how you got to that point and you can talk about the outcome but you're not thinking this caused anything and the, 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 at best there might be a correlation but you're identifying pictures and patterns that over time start to become consistent that you then feed up the experimental chain so um so that that was that and then then i transferred the sort of at that time i didn't think it was right that uk sport were um developing practitioners and the english institute of sport was delivering practice so made the case along with other people to transfer the development and delivery of science and medicine to the english institute of sport and then i i was fully in the innovation team um which was led by a brilliant a genius um and great bloke um dr scott draw um and there was a bunch of sort of five of us that scott got together and said like your your crack commando squad uh, get out there don't tell anybody what you do it was all the secrets secret squirrel stuff um I, I understand where the opportunities are to support um sports and then off you go and, and my, we all had our own domains and mine was the area of athlete health so that involved a lot of equipment design um, making athletes feel comfortable and confident. So things like saddle designs for British cycling and multiple other other things that allow people to train for longer in more comfort, be in better positions. So you sort of protecting them in a way from a comfort perspective, but so you can liberate them and that kind of thing, really. And so thousands of projects that um, are all not, not, you don't publish them because that gives you secrets away and things like that. Um, and so that that flipped from, the kind of standard research methodology to innovation um, and innovation. I think we couldn't really spell it. I think when we started off as a team, but you, um, we gradually established that it was, first of all, you think it's something new and novel, like a wacky idea. Um, and then you realize it's not. And then you realize, well, what it is, is it's a new and novel idea in a particular context that people use and it makes a difference. And if people don't use it, it won't make a difference. And if it's not making a difference, they're not going to keep using it. So actually, 95% of innovation is behavior change. It's getting the idea, but un, uh, creating the environment where someone desires it, wants it, tries it, it makes a benefit. They wouldn't like it taken away from them. Um, and it was a fascinating journey over 15 years of, of, of innovating in, in sport. Um, and the English Institute of Sport uh led currently by matt, dr matt parker just a brilliant group of people who innovate in that space that um it's a bit like the it's uh, i wouldn't compare it in terms of severity of this but you know at bletchley park during the war a lot of amazing stuff went on that no one ever spoke about it's a bit like that in the innovation team not not in terms of uh, a threat to the nation but uh some brilliant thinkers who are doing stupendous work what you're trying to do is you're thinking that every other nation is is going to come up with something that's a little bit better um, and uh, we just became, uh, as a team, quite good at that. Uh, not 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 clever stuff, but just getting there first. So that was an interesting journey. Not doing that. So tell us, when did Podium Analytics come calling? How did that opportunity present itself? Um, it was an invitation. Um, so Podium was um, set up by Ron Dennis, um, um, another genius in the world of sport, one of those rare pioneers who goes from in essence what was a, a, a mechanic to setting up mclaren formula one um at, at the most successful sport 
and um, Ron is a um, very focused, amazing thinker um, and brilliantly compassionate um, and a, one of the most caring people. And maybe that maybe people may or may not think about that about Ron, but he is one of the most caring people. And that, that manifests itself in his, his charities and um, how he utilizes his time. Um, but in Formula One, he is one of the people that was pushing for safety. You know, it's hard to imagine, but many, many years ago, um, it was just difficult even to get a seatbelt in a racing car because the right drivers would rather jump out than be trapped in a car that crashed. So if you take the journey of the design of the car and the halo and the safety and protection, you know, Ron was a real big driver of that. So after Formula One, um, in a situation where he was at a meeting and uh, this particular school was struggling to get a team together and he started to push questions like, well, why? how do we know? Like, oh, well, we've got injuries. Well, what injuries are we getting? Um, uh, we don't know. And so all of a sudden, you know, Ron's sort of genius brain goes, right, there's a problem here. We could do something about it. How do we create a safer world of sport to allow people to participate? Not not, not to stop people playing sport, but how can we liberate people to do that? And the obvious thing to do would have been gone into maybe an easier place, which is elite sport. And what, what, what I mean by that is that uh, there's money. There's a lot of people. You can get the data. Um, everybody's uh, thinking about the world of performance. And true to Ron's sort of creative mind, he said, well, where's the gap? I mean, the gap is in young people who uh, lead, want, ideally would lead a healthy lifestyle and be active. And, and elements of that activity would be sport. And who understands that world, you know, of grassroots sport? There's about 25 million people play grassroots sport, a third of the population. Um, but the research kind of stops just as you get through that fence into the grassroots sport. There isn't anything. And and Ron was um, said this is big and ambitious. It's classic uh, uh, Ron style, right? But um, let's give it a go. So we're going to focus on this young people group um, and set up a strategy to do that. And before I arrived, um, one of the obvious places to go is to develop the world's best in this area. So. The, we're very privileged in the UK to have some of the best sports, science, sports, medicine universities in the world, in, in, in Scotland, Ireland, Wales and, uh, and in the UK. An obvious thing would have been gone to at a currently existing university. But, but Ron said, well, let's bring another player into the room. So through a process, um, quite a strict process, actually uh, interview process, it ends up at Oxford University. So we have the Podium Institute at Oxford University, a 40 million investment over 10 years to being the best brains in, in what is just an outstandingly, staggeringly uh, clever place. Uh, it always freaks me out going there. Um, to look at this world of young people in sport. But at Podium, um, what are we going to do at Podium? So I was approached, I think because of working in innovation. Innovation is all about translating stuff from an idea into reality. And uh, let's have a translatory research team at Podium. So that's my role, Director of Research and Innovation. We sort of take what exists, um, weight that evidence, how strong is it, and then try and make that live in the world of young people, PE teachers, uh, parents in that world. So it's how, do you, how, does it, how does it live in what I would call um, real world research? And that's difficult because, um, as, as you know, there's um, at one end of the research spectrum, you have the efficacy model, like this works in this environment, you know, in this laboratory or on this person. Uh, and then you get the effectiveness end, but nobody's using it in the real world. So it's, it's like, so there's a continuum there 
that we're connecting up really with the massive firepower and genius of Oxford um, with how do we get, how do we understand the world of school, the school teachers step into their shoes. Um, and I think that that's that's a really important thing. Um, in my in my research background, I went through um, the kind of classic, uh, I suppose, classic scientific route. I was doing a lot of research. In, I, I developed uh, in my, when I was teaching at Bristol University. I set up a um, human analysis laboratory, so it was all data. It was all EMG forces and so on. And I started to research into hamstring injuries and things like stretching and its effect on 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 injury. And I was intrigued because. Uh, muscle injuries occur when a muscle is contracting and a lot of the assessments of muscles particularly around flexibility are when the muscle is passive and i just thought there can't be a link so so it was all engineering based i devised a way of measuring the active stiffness of a muscle and then i got a research grant from the fa for three years to look at hamstring injuries in professional footballers so it was very much the uh, numerical data graphical analysis sort of thing when I was at UK Sport to try and understand innovation, there was an opportunity to do research in that area. And so I went to the Royal College of Art. Uh, they have an innovation design department. A lot of people think as sort of drawing, um, you know, life drawing stuff like that. But they have a brilliant innovation department, uh, part of the Dyson group there. So I was looking at innovation in that and, and design, basically. Um, and when I went, I, I won't bore you with that. Uh, the interview process is quite amazing, the Royal College of Art interview process. Um, but um, when I arrived there, I was um, asked to do a, a research, a paper presentation to the profession. I wrote this thing, gave it to him and, and went in for the feedback. And he said, this is the most boring thing I've ever re read in my life. Um, <laughs> get, go away and write uh, 10,000 words, which was the topic on the word desire. And I remember coming home and saying to my wife, God, this, I've, got, I've gone to this weird place to... Um, and it was all what 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 they were trying to get to is the importance of um, uh, desire, wanting something. You, you care about it. So how do you create desire, meaning, value that draws people to want to be in a place to do something? You know, and that's where it links to innovation. You know, if people don't really care about it and they don't want it, they won't use it. So that that sort of training through the Royal College of Art and then I went to St. Martin's College of Art over 13 years um, was really brilliant. You know, I, I I really draw a lot on that in my research thinking uh, of how we might do that. And of course, it starts with understanding the audience. Who who are the people that are living the life that you're trying to design for? And, and how can you, it's well said, Fred, really, but step out of your shoes into theirs and design around the wants and needs from that perspective. And that that's so often not done. Um, and so that drives my thinking, that that sort of world of art and design is a major player in my thinking about research. Mm. I think um, there's a really important point you made uh, a few minutes back that I want to highlight, which is around that gap. And that was something that I completely agree with because you know when you work in, in professional sport, you do see this kind of pyramid where the least amount of people at the, at the top, which is the professionals that are engaged mm. in sport, but they're surrounded by the expertise and the resources and, and all mm. everything required to produce performance. But as you said, actually where the bulk of the population are playing the sport is where there's the volunteer coaches, yeah. there's, you know, really limited budgets and resources, et cetera. And there is a huge opportunity, a huge gap there. Mm. And so I want to dive into, mm. you obviously already started touching on it in terms of, I guess the initial questions that prompted some of the research and prompted some of the, the innovation. So tell us about the Sport Smart project. So we've obviously identified that the injuries is kind of the primary objective. Is there any other aims of the project? Well, yes. I mean, ultimately, so the, the headline would be a safer world of sport. 
And the reason for doing that is to enhance participation. And if you boil that down, what we're really talking about is that uh, exercise activity is an amazing thing. Um, but like anything in life, there are risks involved. And when you try and understand risks, there are some risks that we just um, are inevitable. There's no such thing as no risk. But there might be modifiable risks, things that we can intervene with. So the whole headline is all about understanding um, how people express their, like, you know, why sport is important to people. Um, and there's so many things that dent that experience, but one of which can be injury. And of course, there's, there's about 1,600 different codings of injury if you're doing injury surveillance. Um, and they maybe don't all matter in terms of the incidence and severity. So when you understand risk, a definition of risk is uncertainty about something that matters. So you want to tease out the things that matter to people that dent their experience of sport. And that's what we're trying to do at Podium. Um, so the way that Podium started to develop to do that was have a create a data platform that is unique in its design, um, uh, br brilliantly designed, and, and have an application that is free at cost to no cost to schools and clubs to collect information on, on injury and illness. So that, that's kind of where it where it all started, really. Um, and then when I came into the post, we started to look at um, what sort of projects could we be, bring in, as well as collecting data on injuries? How might we step into the space of trying to prevent them, really? What things do we need to understand? And so what I tried to do was to design projects that were generic, not injury specific at the moment. So things like understanding the growth spurt. So we have a two year project with Bath University looking at the growth spurt. What we mean by that is the evidence at the elite level is quite strong. But can we translate it into the school environment? Uh, understanding workload and adaptation, mental health, psychological well-being and um, data literacy. So when you present data back to a school, um, as in my life, so I did 15 years of injury surveillance in the uh, elite sport. Three questions are always when you present the data, what does it mean? Is it good or bad? And what should I do about it? So um, and then the other area of a project that started to arise was, well, um, what about there's a lot of information in science and medicine that exists in the world. How would you get it into the school environment so it's easily accessible and compelling for school teachers and PE teachers? So the point being, we started to develop these bits of activity that it made sense to bring it together in one space, one space, really. Um, and that that's where really SportsMart arose. So it, it's this sort of oracle, this this container, if you like, of all the bits of information that um, like a, a toolkit in, in, in essence, that someone working in grassroots and school sport can access this this place and find these things that would the way I express it is doing the basics really, really well. And that's not to say that doesn't go on. There are just outstanding um examples of care in the school environment sometimes against great adversity of lack of resources and time some amazing amazing uh, things going on in this so how could we boost that and put sort of a bit more fuel in there so sports marts about that it, it's it's accessing tools to collect information on injury it's uh, helping people understand what that data means it's um for example in the resource hub the first year we have uh, launching in june uh, a series of 12 episodes on injury prevention. Um, so this is a bit like a, a mini Netflix, if you imagine it like that. So you could go on, uh, for example, one of the first episodes is on the growth spurt. 
So we got two world leading experts in Bath University to say this is what it is, this is what it means. Then we'll have a school teacher's point of view. Then we'll have some practical top tips. And as we go on, um, so each of these episodes, we bring more and more understanding about the 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 sort of expert opinion. But here's the challenges of doing that in the school environment. And ultimately, the the stars of the show, if you like, ultimately in in Sportsmart, in the resource hub, will be the school teachers. It will be the coaches because it's a world that they understand. And I, I think it will evolve to um, be driven by school teachers, PE teachers saying, actually, we, we really would like more information on this. And our role at Podium, because we've got the, the resources as a charity to do that, is to bring that information into that world to create that safer world of sport. So it's a whole suite of information, um, collecting data, understanding data, educational things, sharing ideas around best practice, DIY solutions to, um, to allow people to do the basics really, really well. I think one of the practical challenges, I don't know if you've experienced this um, or maybe the listeners will have done, in is trying to bring a scientific research mindset into the school environment where you start with let's have complete data sets where there's no gaps where we've got seven years of data with a statistical power of this very difficult to get it and even in situations where we've got some brilliant podium schools we've got nearly 200 uh, you know schools engaged in sports mart at the moment um so one of the first questions i might say to to us to pe teacher or, uh, who's in data collecting they have a passion for it. They're trying to understand it. Does this data truly represent all the injuries? And they often will go, well, it's not all of them. No, um, but we're interested in these ones. Um, so it's not a truly reflective data set, as you'd see in elite sport. Uh, so for me, I spent quite a lot of time thinking, oh, my gosh, that, that kind of worries me a little bit. You know, is some data better than no data? And how do you deal with that? But if you reframe your thinking around the it's a learning journey, it's a school that says, we don't know what an injury is. We don't know how many we're getting. We don't know what to do. Where do we start? So you provide some information. They don't really understand uh, initially. So you work with them to understand it. Now they've got knowledge. Say, all oh, right, okay. So we want to understand a little bit more about that. So it's more of a progressive journey uh, around confidence, competency, um, engaging with elements of care. What could we do that's better than what we're doing now? What's the evidence for it? And it's if you view it like that, then it re works really, really well. Um, sometimes um, an elite sport and uh, the a um, you know the IOC, let's say, who are brilliant at what they do, might look at the methodology and think, "Hang on a minute, <laughs> you know, you're only collecting small data sets here." But um, it allows you to have more information than you had to make decisions on it, to test those decisions when it's safe to do so. Um, it's the only way of gradually treading forwards in this space. I would say when I so at UK Sport, when I was looking across the UK, I thought that was the most complex thing I've ever tried to do. It's nothing compared to to working in the school and club environment because um, you've got all the challenges of uh, rigor, data, information, changing behaviours that are engraved for years, understanding young people. Um, it, it's massively wicked problem. But that's what Podium are there to do, to sort of unify and accelerate and create a momentum to shine a light on this sort of dark space that no one's really engaged with um, and say, how can we work it out as we go? 
And one of the be beautiful things about Podium, both, both the Institute at Oxford and at Podium, is its sort of agility and the speed with which we can say, right, this is this doesn't look like it's working. So where are we going to go now? You know, this incredible iteration to be like a centre of gravity, to pull people into this world that has been pretty vacant today, you know. Mm. And obviously, uh, we've heavily focused on schools, but I've also heard you say clubs multiple times as well. So it's, uh, I'm guessing it's also accessible for recreational clubs, grassroots clubs, locally, etc. So, absolutely. So we currently uh, sport with England Hockey. We do have the app doing their leading on their injury surveillance program. So, um, so there are grassroots uh, sport information coming in from from. For example, we do all the injury surveillance, as I say, for England Hockey. They're on an iterative journey. We got. Um, seven years of their data about a year ago we analyzed that we go right this is this is really strong this could do with a bit of work now we go into the next iteration and so in our work while we focus mainly schools there are certain clubs linked to ngbs that would come for support so for example um, one of our partners is um, schools of royal ballet school who are at the elite end i mean probably the the top in the world at that but they, they're looking for specific questions about how we can understand the experience of young people at that end of the work. Uh, British Gymnastics is a case in point, the Lawn Tennis Association. And the LTA is a great example where they really care about young people who have a talent, a potential talent. And we're talking about sort of 10 year olds now going at the regional development player centers. So there's 15 of these. Um, you come in at the age 10, you end that journey at 14 and hopefully the majority of them will flip over into the national program a lot of historical work in sport has been measuring things like data how strong people are how fast they serve and we've missed the reality of the human experience of why people play sport so in the research team that, that i lead we talk about uh, understanding what meaningful sport means what does it bring to people why do they care about it how do you capture the experience of sport so you can design the experience of sport because if you i think if you just focus on on injuries the negative stuff or psychological well-being and when it goes wrong you're missing the understanding that comes from when it goes right and what people care about when it goes right are the things you want to design into your program so where it's leading in the future is how do you design the most meaningful experience for that person and that experience uh is more about being appropriate. It's appropriate to their development. So there's going to be times when it's going to be quite hard because you've got to push to get adaptation, um, but it's within your best interest that we need to do that and it's consensual and so on and so forth. It's not the abusive end of things. So there's an element of our work um, through national governing bodies, which is more around this meaningful sport. How do you, do, how do you create that? Uh, British Gymnastics is another case in point that we work with who are doing an amazing job of turning, uh, responding to, a, a, you know, the, the white review. Um, and how do you do that across all these grassroots clubs? Um, so that thinking about um, creating the experience of sport is really important. And also what we're finding at the school environment is there are people that play sport for social engagement. They just like walking and or jogging and talking to people. They don't have a desire to be really good at that. It, uh, the social aspects of sport are often missed. You know, it, and injury uh, can take that away. You lose your social group. You're, you're not in the WhatsApp group anymore. So all of that. So and PE, you know, when you go into a PE, that's about being active. 
It's about experiencing a different of things. It's not a performance progression, and but that's really, really important. So we're trying to understand the different levels of engagement in sport, support all of those levels. Um, and that's that's the beauty of spectrum. At, at one end, we um, work with international federations. We work with national governing bodies. But equally, we'll be standing uh, on a pitch with a school PE teacher who also teaches geography, who does an amazing job. Um, that's the whole spectrum of Podium's work, really. Fantastic. And I think it is such a useful tool because you know you don't need to hang around uh, PE teachers very long to to understand some of the challenges they have around you know large groups and I maybe don't have the time to think about how to adapt it for little Johnny who's turned up with an ankle injury so you know you just sit out and then that creates a whole nother another issue all those things so I think it's a fantastic tool what's been some of the feedback that you've had from some of the schools that are using it so far it's varied I think the um the invitation from Podium is that schools have the opportunity to engage uh, with Podium at no cost over understanding injury prevention. Some schools um, are really on it. They love it. Tends to be they've got a champion um, um, who drives it. Some schools are more resourced than others. And so at that end, it's, it's really embraced. At the other end, it's sports that might try it a little bit. Uh, and, and maybe are finding it a little bit difficult to keep up to date with all the injuries and things like that. So uh, that's part of our process of finding that out. You know, there are um, schools that are more capable, have more capacity to do it than others. But that doesn't mean that we're not nimble enough and responsive enough to deal with the others that are more have more constraints. So we're working on a lighter version at the moment of how could, what's the smallest amount of information that we could collect from a school that would be beneficial, that, that would bring value uh, and it's worth the effort. Uh, otherwise you just forget, uh, you, you don't forget, you just say it's not worth it. And, and every young person's experience and those that support it is worth it. So it's our ability to be nimble and act to that. So that's, that's something that we're working on at the moment. Um, in some schools, I mean, uh, Seven Oaks, uh, St. Albans, St. Albans on, on Monday are doing an amazing job at using data to inform practice, to feed back to the governors, to influence uh, uh, all based around care of young people. Um, so what, what we're trying to do is we work on the principle that all coaches, um, PE teachers, parents, kids care. It's like, how can we just match the level of care with their ability to engage so that the feedback um, has been great across the board. There's no question about that. Um, there's definitely alignment. People are leaning into this world that were really had the backs facing to this world at the moment. I think the next year or two, we'll see a massive push um, in engagement. So I'll give, I'll give two, exp uh, two extremes if, if that's okay. Um, if I took the Podium Institute at Oxford, they're about to produce... Um, the world's first economic impact on head injury. So we, we know that um, it's there's a euphoria over it at the moment. It, it's it's universal in, in the papers. Um, what was lacking was well, what's the economic cost of it? What difference does it really make in economic terms? We know the kind of human incidence and severity aspects of it. Um, so on that end, that's producing a paper to say, look, this is the extent of the problem. But backed with that is this sort of unique program at 
at Oxford were looking at what might be the dose response model. So to try and understand the response of the brain to different loads and impacts to maybe get to a position to, to say that this person's crossed that threshold. So at the one end in that area and in areas like artificial intelligence, technology, uh, youth sport medicine, it's really driving front end stuff. For example, cardiac risk in the young, you know, eight to 10 deaths you know, a week. Um, what could we do about that? It's a really challenging problem, but it's a really major issue uh, in its very, so there's Oxford at that end. And at the other end, it's trying to understand what are the practical challenges in an environment where a PE teacher said, you know, like, why is it that we get a lot of females around about 14 disengaging, like, and they've been injured. Um, but when the boys get injured, they don't. So we're also listening with an ear to the ground, really, at, at the front end, people saying, actually, we don't understand this. Like, what? why is it? And we can go into the that end and start the journey of, of understanding. Um, and the other thing uh, that I would say over the next two years and, and where sort of SportsMart starts to uh, link in is it, it creates a central place where people hopefully can come to to get really good information. In, in talking to teachers, um, because kids are playing lots of different sports so you're playing football you've got here's what football says about for example a head injury rugby here's what rugby said about it and it's like oh my god it's really gone why can't, why can't we keep it really simple do do the basic stuff and say this information is easy to find it, it's current it's exactly what you need to know um, um and it's currently the best evidence we've got to argue that we can modify this risk and therefore increase participation. And that that's really what, what uh, Podium is trying to do. And also through its work to bring in more financial resources, which allow, give us the capability to provide more uh, support to grassroots level and, and school, really. Um, so I think the two years it will start to feel more weighty um, and hopefully teachers will come and find that there's a benefit but it's an iterative process. And I think uh, we consult and it's like all design. You design it, uh, you understand the person using it, you put it out there, people come back and say, could it be a bit more like that? And we will respond. And I think there will be an iteration over the next 18 months, particularly with the resource hub to say, well, can we have it a bit like this or maybe less time or more time? Or can, can we speak to Rob Anderson and have Rob on there? You know, that kind of thing um, is where we're heading with that. Mm, fantastic you took the words out of my mouth because that was my next question was going to be around the next sort of 12 to 18 months so that's that's answered that question quite nicely where can people find out more about SportsMart? if there's teachers listening who want to you know champion it in their school where, where's the best place to, to get well the, probably the the bait the, the overall information about podium is just on the website at podium analytics you know and 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 that's fine um there is i've got it written down here there um you can email uh, info at sportsmart.org um, and an email would uh, be responded to really quickly. We've got an amazing comms team that would deal with that. Um, and um, that's probably either the, the website, but ideally info at sportsmart.org. Um, and that would allow the school or club to get signed up uh, to Podium to be able to access that information. Um, and it's an exciting time to do it, really, because uh, Sportsmart is just launch the the um the resource hub launches in june so a month away um and also what's um possibly uh one of the stronger reason i'd recommend it at the moment is um the government head injury 
guidelines have just come out, as we know, um, uh, but linked to that through a very thorough process through government and the scientific committee was how are we going to understand the impact this is having on the school environment. So Podium have been chosen to conduct, be uh, drive a two year study to understand the impact of head injury guidelines on the school environment. And to do that, all the current guidelines are in our application, which is part of the Sport Smart uh, Information Generating Programme. So schools can have access to the app to record head injuries um, and for us to understand how that's going, whether the guidelines are being implemented, what the challenges are. Um, so, um, so that's also an, a, a, a useful uh, reason to engage at the moment um, because those those guidelines are, are out there now. Um, and it was quite a rigorous process. They have an incredibly robust scientific committee at the, in government, as you might imagine, looking across the world at what to do. Um, and so we work quite closely. And uh, in the end, they chose the, the podium platform to collect that information. So that will be two year study um, looking at how it's helping schools and grassroots clubs to uh, manage head injury uh, and, and care for people in, in, a, in a more positive way, more powerful way. Fantastic. Well, it's a mammoth project that you're undertaking, but a really important one. So um, now thanks for everything you're doing. And I'm sure it's going to provide a fantastic service for schools and, and a sorely needed one. Um, but thanks so much for your time today. It's been great to to get your your side of things and how Podium Analytics and Sports Smarts kind of developing. And hopefully more people take the opportunity to, to jump on board and utilize that because it's going to be a fantastic resource. Great. Thank you very much. Rob. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love your support by leaving a rating or review on your chosen podcast player. You can also find us on social media using at LTAD Network. Thanks for listening to this episode. And don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform as well as 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50.